attention I can't get no call to action but I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term band wagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, we've landed ourselves a bumper catch of Rania and Trevor Robinson, OBE. Adland's primo power couple, Rania and Trevor, are CEO and ECD, respectively, of Quiet Storm, a creative marriage of ad agency and production company. Rania has headed up accounts and driven strategy for some of the world's biggest brands, including Haribo, Mercedes, Google and Coca-Cola, whilst Trevor is responsible for some of the most talked about advertising of our era, including You've Been Tangoed and Haribo's Kids' Voices. Dedicated philanthropists, they have recently revived Create Not Hate, an initiative helping young people underrepresented in the creative industry to unlock their potential. Welcome to the show, Rania and Trevor. Hi, Giles. Hi there. Right, so quick fire questions. Number one, tea or coffee? Coffee. <laughs> Trevor? Oh, definitely tea. <laughs> okay. Chai. That sounds really fancy. It's chai as well. Nice. Why not? Number two, be different or be distinct? Be distinct. Yeah, be distinct. Uh, three, brainstorms or mind bombs? Mind bombs. <laughs> mind bombs. Nice. Easy. <laughs> Star mix or tang fastics? Oh, tang fastics. Definitely. Ooh, that's, that's hard because I like them both. Let's go for star mix because I like the little jelly men. <laughs> I love jelly men. Green ones, preferably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're fighting over those. Huh? Uh, number five, then. I know uh, Rania's answer. Salami or Parma ham? Parma ham for me. Oh, God. I, well, I love both. So I, I don't um I don't. Oh, God, that's a tough one. I, I love both. Depends what mood I'm in. <laughs> what did you think I was going to say? I thought you were going to say Parma ham. Well, I do love Parma ham, to be honest with you. But, you know, when you put salami in I would have said it was salami it for you. It's huh? very competitive. Well, I do like both. I have to say it. <laughs> have you ever heard Bob Mortimer talk about pocket meat? No, God, that sounds terrible. <laughs> it does sound terrible. Meat on the go. I, I really love Bob, Bob Mortimer and um, Vic, Vic Rees back in the day. But I, I think I half remember pocket meat, but not that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan. Anyway, t- uh, two more. This is a Guinness one. Surfer or swim black? Oh, surfer. Surfer. Uh, see, I'm a sucker for swim black. But lastly, uh, Beyonce or Black Uhuru? Oh my God, Beyonce, all day long. Ooh. <laughs> all day long for me. Black Uhuru. Okay. <laughs> Show my age there. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. You didn't agree on many there? No. <laughs> We'd have a boring marriage if we did, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be absolutely um thank you so much for joining us to start call to action we always ask every guest about 
their path to where they are now. And we find more often than not, it's rarely a, it's rarely a linear one, which I think really needs celebrating. Um, could you both start by telling our audience about your first ever jobs and then what you would regard as your first marketing or creative advertising job? So my very first job, I was 14 and it was a Saturday job in the chippy, local, like the chip shop. can't remember, Stobies, I think it was called. Um, and then... And then for my first marketing job, so my first, I started off as a kind of receptionist stroke runner at a, what was called then, I don't know if people use this language really particularly anymore, but sort of below the line um, agency in Parsons Green. And I was kind of, yeah, had a bit of a job to to be taken seriously because I hadn't come in in the conventional way. And as an agency, they had wanted graduates with three years experience before they would consider having them as an account manager. And, and I obviously had neither of those. And uh, yeah, so just had to work very, very hard. And with a lot of, you know, with some good mentors and good support, I managed to work my way uh, into an account management role eventually um, there. And, and did when you uh, when you first started there then, so no doubt it was a lot of hard work to, to, uh, to grow into that role and that position. Did you instinctively and, and immediately feel like it was the right environment to work in? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I for me, I've always been very instinctive in, in how I've made my choices in life, to be honest with you. And I loved the feel of the agency. It was a small boutique independent agency. And actually, I've spent my whole career in independent agencies uh, for, for, you know, for good reason, really, because you kind of can, you can be part of, you can get stuck in, basically, you're not pigeonholed in a, in a specific role when you're, when you're um, in a sort of smaller indie type environment. And I just, I just was, I used to type up all the presentations, basically. And that was when, for me, I'd never really had a really clear sense of career direction. I knew I wanted to do something in, in media or advertising or music or, or mark some, you know, and I kind of got a sense that marketing was probably an interesting area for me but I, I it was at that point when I used to type up these presentations and I'd really fall in love with the ideas and the, the strategy and all the thinking behind it and yeah and that was it that was when I knew I knew this is kind of I mean I loved TV ads so I always kind of um used to really enjoy the TV ads back back then but um hadn't really realized what the way in was um so um it was at that point that I thought yeah I just love ideas and 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 thinking the thinking behind the ideas as well has got me really excited. Yeah, I, f- I feel like it's um, one of one of the many ways we could improve young talent coming into the industry is simply an awareness issue. I think um, I've got two young daughters myself, and when I when I flick through the uh, many silly, daft, amazing books that they have on their bookshelves, they they kind of centre on certain trades and professions which get in far sooner, whether it's a fireman or a policeman or what have you. Um, and, I, and I really think that there needs to be some more advertising uh, and magical creative lands. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Particularly if you don't, like you said, if you don't have parents in the industry, like my mum my was a teacher, my dad was a doctor. So I had no real inspiration or, or kind of way in, in a way, or, you know, that, that, that would kind of, I think I'd have got there a lot sooner if I'd had more sort of role modelling or exposure to the industry in some shape or form much earlier. 
at the same time, Ryan, would you, would you suggest that actually having a quite a broad, rounded, or I suppose more kind of wide ranging experience has benefited you? And the, the reason I ask is I um I, I mentor, or I was going to say young, he's 30, I'm 40, so to me, he's very young strategist. And I made the same point to him earlier that when you are in an independent agency, in my experience anyway, I've always preferred those who come from quite an eclectic background rather than those that have perhaps been much more linear and their career progresses through the kind of same corridor without that world experience. Oh, definitely. I mean, for me, for the role that I do now, which is a kind of chief exec role, it, the fact that I've done a lot of these roles in my career over the years, I've you know, I've done production, I've done account handling and I've done planning. And the fact that I've kind of can understand those three areas, I think has made it really, you know, much easier for me to do my job as a, as a CEO, because I can, you know, I can I intimately understand what, what it takes to, to do those jobs. And whilst it's moved on, you know, things have moved on and um, it, it's very different. I've got that kind of deeper understanding and recognition and appreciation for, for those roles in the business and what, you know, yeah, what they do and, and the contribution they can make in the, in the overall process. So I think so, definitely. And I wouldn't have got that exposure had I not worked at an independent because you naturally, I mean, I worked at agencies where you, as the account person, had to do the planning on your account. You know, and I think so that naturally led me into into a strategic role later on in my career and, and, and equally, you know, account handling roles where you had to get stuck in and, and get involved in the production side as well. And I don't think that would happen in a big, more classically structured organisation, whereas it happens all the time in, in an independent um, agents, particularly a fast growing one where, you know, um, opportunities come up and you don't necessarily can't resource them quickly enough and people just get stuck in basically. Yeah. And before you know it, you need to define a new job role for whoever did that bit that someone just did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Trevor, can I come to you as well and ask about your first ever job and how that evolved into a, into an advertising job? My first ever job was, um, I used to do sort of like bubble jobs locally and just do anything that people wanted me to do from cleaning out their their shops um, basement to you know cleaning their cars and stuff like that like most kids did and my week to week job first one was Tesco's where I used to pack the shelves not very successfully because I was I've never been any good at anything that I can't it, that bores me so I lasted <laughs> for about a summer and then I freelanced as an illustrator, a court artist at one stage when I was at college. And um, and I used to design book covers, you know, the illustration for book covers. Uh, the, the, the court artist I did, um, Jeremy, what's his name? Oh. Jeffrey Archer. Jeffrey Archer, that's it. I've still got the illustrations to prove it. It's not, it wasn't a very nice man. And then um, I got, um, I got a, my first serious job was in Richmond, a company called Samuel and Pierce, where I I was like a, um, a sort of junior designer, creative. It was very depressing, but I did meet my, my creative partner, Al Young, there, and I persuaded him to leave with me and venture into the West End, which took us over, I guess, about uh, a year and a half to get into a decent West End agency. But that's where I all started off doing pile creams in brochures. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I I had no idea that you were a court artist. Yeah. And so so that background of being the court artist and obviously you were doing illustration and book covers and so on and so forth. Did you did you make like I know many people do, did you make that uh sidestep, if you like, from a more uh, fine art 
type, uh, I suppose, pursuit or interest, then discover the world of advertising? Or did you know that you wanted to somehow get into that world already? I think I, was, I stumbled into it, to be honest, because um, when I was at college, uh, for some reason, I didn't get a grant. So I had to pay for it off my own bat. And I got myself terribly in debt to pay for my exhibitions, portfolios and all that. And and coming from a working class background, you can imagine how much money that was. So I was desperate to get a job to get out of debt, really, and get out my, which I did move out of my home, but it was a real struggle. And um, I got um, two opportunities. One was um, an animation company, which I was, I must admit, I was more excited about getting. And the other one was the, the job I mentioned, Salmon and Pierce. And uh, the animation company didn't take me and I went the other way. But then I got kind of a, a bug for advertising. Those guys there was obsessed with campaign and obsessed with advertising at this little advertising agency. And they seemed to know everybody like they were heroes and stuff. And uh, and I've always, like Ryan, you said, I grew up in an era where ads were brilliant. You know, it was the Heinekens, it was the, the um, you know, the, the, the um, Benson and Hedges campaigns. It was like um, Silk Cut. There was lots of brilliant ideas that you'd go into school to, to to have you seen and mimic and stuff like that. So I grew up in that era. I just didn't think I could come up with ideas day in, day out. You know, I just, just didn't, I couldn't imagine how easy, how hard that would be. But um, um, yeah, I managed to uh, realize I, I was quite good at it, probably at college. And I definitely felt like when, when we were um, going around with our book, it's, it's interesting you made the point there of the ads, of the silk cuts and the uh, Benson and Hedges. And I've heard you speak or mentioned before the Carling ads and how it kind of bled into culture and society and specifically schools. Um, of course, you've gone on to make uh, ads, which I have firsthand experience of, of um, experiencing in, in schools. I've certainly remember being tangoed oh, really? when I was about 12 years old. So that's really uh, kick-started off. Was it, was it that link with actual production? So obviously you had that interest from the animation side and previously I said obviously with the illustration and actual doing and the ideas and the creativity and the advertising side that led to you starting Quiet Storm in 1995. I mean, I, I appreciate there's many years there that I've just sort of let frog, but was that part of it? I, I blend them myself. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I mean, like, because I just always, like, I love film, and Ronnie could tell you, I could bore you to death with the amount of films I've watched, and, uh, and, uh, and my brain is kind of designed that way. I can regurgitate films and scenes, and, you know, it, when I'm directing, I find... I almost don't know where it's coming from because I kind of go, I can't remember or hold on to things, most things. And again, Ryan, you could tell you about how complacent I am in life, but but something with ideas and films, it just sticks with me. And and I, I grew up in an era where the directors really didn't care that much about advertising. They just did it to, to, to make a bit of money and they were slightly embarrassed about saying they did an ad. And they were more looking forward to doing a feature film or even a promo. And we used to, you know, sometimes work for a year, six months, trying to win a piece of business, get it through, get it through research, get, you know, get clients to take it off and buy it. And then you give it to these very matrix looking guys who sit with their dark sunglasses and long coats. And they would, they basically didn't care. And the, the work would come out. And when you see ads on the TV and you go, well, I can see there's a good idea there. 
but I really, uh, it's somewhere lost in translation. And I always used to blame it's because the people directing it didn't care, didn't understand, and didn't like ads particularly. So I thought if I wanted to set up a system where we, the, the creators can write and direct their own work. And I know there was a lot of brilliant directors like Frank Budgen, who are ex-creatives who went over to being directors, and even Tom and Walt, who did the, 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 um, the Guinness work, I think is one of the best creators that's ever lived. And they stopped being, you know, advertising creators and just become directors. And I always thought that was a shame. And I always wanted to to do both. So that's why I wanted to set up Quiet Storm in the first place. Also, it was also the way production companies are a little bit more friendly, I would say, than than, than creative agencies. And you people are really excited about working together. And so we I'd like to think our planners and our account guys. Um, have a better um, relationship with clients and with their fellow colleagues than other agents. I can't compare that now because, um, you know, I've been running my own place for so long. But and that was one of the reasons that I really liked running Quiet Storm because you, you're able to to change the way people perceive the client and, and, and use them, as it were, to get the best work out there. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes complete sense as well. You identified a link that was perhaps broken there. Um, and it was more of, a, I suppose, a box-ticking exercise for the directors and the production guys to get something done while they were secretly dreaming of doing feature films. Is that something that still exists? Do you do you do you both think outside of of Quiet Storm? Because there's are there are other areas which seem to have been decoupled, perhaps when you compare it to agencies of a few decades ago. Even even something as you know broadly speaking as media and creative. I think I think there's lots of I mean there's lots of businesses now agencies have got production in house or they've got production as part of their network you know set up or but I think what is still quite unusual from what from our understanding is where the creatives when it comes to above the line and classic TV advertising not content you know necessarily but but where you've got a creative who's come up with an idea and also directed it that is still quite unusual as far as we know there's not that many businesses that 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 um that have all the kind of classic creative agency kind of capabilities in the way that we do and can also then go on to to um, have the same creative the same people coming up with the ideas actually directing them so but I mean that we might not be the only one but we're certainly one of few versus like one of many but yeah of course most businesses now have some you know AV production capability probably you know um, whether that's just you know a certain level or, or right up to TV but I say I think you probably um, most agencies that we compete against will be putting their their TV advertising out to, to a production company. Um, and if not, they, they won't necessarily have the creative um, who came up with directing it. So that's still quite unique. I think, you know, working more collaboratively and bringing clients into the process more and, you know, being more lean and agile and all that sort of stuff, I think is is something that all businesses have to do now, um, to be honest with you. But I do think that that bit is still quite unusual. The other bit. Do you, do you think that perception still exists, though, where you might have directors outside of your team? Do you think you still have directors who might not have the same appreciation of directing an ad versus doing a feature film? Or is that just the age-old issue of creative people? Well, I can't really comment on that, to be honest, because, like I said, we're not working for that old school setup. I would say that it's all about vision and it's about um, sensibility. And if, if you've got a vested interest in this idea and you want that idea to escalate by bouncing off new and fresh minds 
Um, but it's your idea and you understand why the importance of it and you understand the nuances of the advertising side to it as well. Because some directors are absolutely brilliant and bring in a vision to life, but they really don't know or even care that much about selling. And and I think that's something fundamental. And like I believe that why people remember the name of the commercials that we've been involved in, and the ad ideas that we've been involved with, because we hold that up on the pedestal. You know, people don't go, have you seen a commercial when they talk in kids' voices? They say, have you seen a Haribo ad? So that for us is incredibly important and it helps with selling and it and it's something that we have a perception of and an understanding for an appreciation for that I think some directors might not have. I might be throwing a, a sweeping statement there. They might all turn around and go, oh, we love ads and we love selling. But I think also they've not been involved. They don't understand. They haven't got that kind of relationship with the client or with the brand or that real understanding of the of the, the kind of intimate understanding of the strategy and the you know and, and all that kind of stuff which which you have from when you're involved from start to finish so you can't expect them to to be yeah. honest no, no it's only fair yeah I mean they don't have to be there at pitch stage you don't have to be there at trying to sell an idea through and they're not there when you're having to present that to the client and you know and when you're having to go through um edit tweets but sometimes when they've already left after their first cut you're getting the sound you're getting the music you're getting it through you, you know and to, to have that intensity or that having somebody who's all over it all the way through I think is super important is that part of the success behind the Haribo kids voices campaigns that you just referenced there oh I'm not sure if it's that really I think it is I think we we have a really great um, connection with our client and like we met I met her we, actually we've been doing a campaign for seven years but I had met her previously at Swartz and he allowed us to pitch for the the Haribo campaign and I think he's always been that kind of client where we're friends but it's mainly about are we doing a job for them are we you know are we making his life easier and you know and that means like he now runs he's the top dog in, worldwide in um, Haribo now because of the campaign. The campaign's gone worldwide. And I do believe the reason why is our relationship with the client, but also our understanding of the brand and nuances of the brand, the importance of having it. It's real kids talking and it's recorded real kids first. And then we write a script for it, and We, um, so, which is a very unique way of going around. You know, it's not many times when you come up with the, the words first and you come up and then come up with the scenario and then you sell that to the client. And that's, you do need a, a, a unique uh, understanding and trust with the client when it's that way around. They're buying into an, an, um, a dialogue as opposed to an idea. But I also think when you're coming up with the idea, you understand the, how to execute it in the way to get the best result as well. So conceptually, so I think it's a really important point that Trev makes there, and he used the word script, but actually is unscripted. But you use what the kids say to then inform the, you know, what you end up shooting. So the, you, they figured that out before, and and we and we did it. We we did a test um, shoot to to sh- present the idea to the client because it's quite difficult to tell a client you've got to buy an idea, but there's no script yet. <laughs> we haven't got a script, by the way. So we're going to wait and see what the kids say. So you know, we had to do a test, sort of little test sort of film for it. And that's stuff you can do when, when you've got in-house production and you 
other people, you, you know, you're, you've got a director's mindset. So you know exactly how to make that idea work. Because we, we actually, at the time that the first um, ad launched, there was another ad out at the time that had used a similar mechanic of kids' voices, but, but they'd, theirs was scripted. And you can really tell the difference between the two ads. And, and, the, and you know, it, it just, just didn't work with the scripted. And so, again, you would have had someone write a script and then hand it to a director. Whereas if you're doing both jobs together, you kind of know that actually it'd be better unscripted. At the time as well, it came out and that other campaign came out and people was going, oh, look, they've ripped off the Haribo ad badly. So <laughs> there you go. Double, double slap. Well, hats off, hats off to you for, for that campaign because it was absolutely wonderful. And, and especially hats off to you from my daughter, um, Annabelle, who's only six years old. Oh. And that's one of two ads that I can just see the joy on her face when she actually sees. Oh, that's really nice to know that. Yeah, it's, it's good. You're competing with the Weetabix submarine, though. I'll have to uh, give that credit to she For some reason, that really gets her. <laughs> but actually, I made a point on a previous episode. I, I was fortunate enough to finally get hold of Bill Birnbach's book. And when I was flicking through it for the first time, she came and sat next to me on the sofa and without really understanding any of the context and of course, most or if not all of the brands or the brief or any of that detail, she started chuckling at a few of the compositions. And to me, that was just like magical to see. And I think it's so easy. And, and you know, people in Adland are very guilty of living in bubbles, obviously. But when you see an ad like Arabo actually being received by people who not only aren't associated with the industry, but probably couldn't give a toss about it anyway, and actually seeing it have an effect, that's when it just feels so great. I, I always think that's the biggest barometer for me. And like Ron's heard this before, but my brother's a great example of someone who cares very little about advertising. And he probably, you know, he, he, the ones that he does care about, he will approach me and go, oh, Trev, did you do that? Would most of the time known for well, I didn't do it, and I would have to turn <laughs> it, 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 It's really pleasing when he comes to me and goes, "Did you do that?" And I go, "Yeah, I did." Like, like, I remember um, there was a "Create Not Hate" campaign that we did recently with the Romeo and Juliet campaign, and my brother sent it to me on WhatsApp and go, "Oh, you got to watch this. This is brilliant." And I went, "Yeah, yeah, we did that." And he was like, "So for me, I'm, I'm with you on that." Like it's incredibly nice to get plaudits from your client and obviously it keeps us all in business and and also winning awards and all that that really helps helps us be seen as a a good agency and we do good work but i always think the best barometer is people out there and if they don't like it and if they hate your work or if they do like it you're doing something right yeah, well said, well said. Um, you mentioned Create Not Hate there. Can you tell our listeners a bit about Create Not Hate? Because I had the pleasure of talking to Jess Gregson recently, the wonderful Jess Gregson, and she gave it a bit of airtime, but I'd like to give it some more um, and also hear it in your words, if, if, if I may. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Ryan could really elaborate this on a, on a me- mechanical side because she really has made it something that's quite viable and something that, because when I first came up with it, it was a frustration that I found when I first came into advertising that yes, there's a lot of bright, intelligent people in advertising, but it just felt like it was coming from one sector of of society. And you could see from Brexit, that's a real mistake because if you don't get what the outside world and it can bite you in the ass. And, and I was also really aware of where I grew up. There's some incredibly talented, bright people that I knew just didn't know about advertising and haven't had a long and fortunate career that I've had. And I also thought not only is that lack 
for them, but it's a loss for advertising, you know, because I just, I know what I've brought to the game, but I also know what, how many other people that didn't get involved and like, whereas the other industries are all seeming to, to, um, to reap the reward of having truly diverse people working for them. And so the people that are coming up with the idea understand the target audience. And also it's a lot more, you've got a lot more of a spark of, uh, of, of creativity can happen when you've got people from different backgrounds that take the same information and come up with different things. And I always think me and Al was a perfect example of that. He's from Scotland. He's well-educated Edinburgh chap. And I'm, I'm from, you know, clapping the streets and all that. And I think it was, it was that clash of, of personalities and cultures, but finding each other both excited about coming up with ideas that allowed us to come up with ideas like that. So when I started to do Create Not Hate, that was my intention to try and bring some kids from, you know, less fortunate backgrounds or um, diverse backgrounds, places where I'll come from, and try and get them into advertising to try and give advertising a little bit of a kick in the ass and 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 you know and 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 show these kids that there's lots of different like you got the subject matter you guys were talking about earlier that they would not know about advertising and they would not know about know about the possibilities that could happen in it and um, yeah we started I started off with with using um, gun knife and gun crime as a as a subject matter went back to my old school um, but I was a bit stupid and naive when I first started I thought I could do this all off my own back and people would see the out, output and we did an amazing film and I tried to get as many people in like Dennis is one of a uh, uh, he's one of the guys he's just done a feature film recently funny enough and he's worked with Idris and uh, quite, and I, I, he was a gang member when I first met him or ex-gang member uh, I think he was and he started producing and direct he co-directed the film with me when we started now he's doing really well but this time around, especially after George Floyd, and I was like alongside a lot of people wanting to try and do something, and we decided to, we're going to try and revitalize Create Not Hate again using racism as our, our subject matter, which everybody was talking about at the time. And so that was a good thing to get the kids to talk about and deal with. Ron, do you want to take? The yeah, point? I mean, I think I think it was like timing is a really important thing in any you know I think Trevor was way ahead of his time back in 2007 the industry wasn't really ready for it that wasn't that wasn't that kind of recognition that we have now that diversity is important um and yeah it was just the timing felt right and and this time around we've got the support that, that we were hoping to have got all those years ago um to be honest but we're just we're, we're happy that that's now getting traction we've we've tackled um, since then, we've we've um, worked with an organisation called Shout, who um, have a, a mental health um, kind of uh, texting service uh, where we were specifically targeting um, young black boys because they're most at risk. They have, as you can imagine, a lot of the kind of uh, social sort of issues and challenges um, that, that impact on self-esteem and, and mental health and are probably the least likely to well, they, they are the least likely to, to kind of um, necessarily come out and ask for help. Um, so we, we've done that. And we've also looked at um, uh, Stop and Search. Uh, we recently did a Stop and Search film as well. And when we're doing some uh, brilliant work with John Lewis at the moment as well. So um, so it's, it's, it's getting the traction now. And, and um, you know, and we've also done uh, some, some work with Media Trust as well, um, where we've done some live live. Um, uh, kind of briefs with with Vimto and, and stuff like that so yeah it's 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 kind of got the 
the the momentum that that it kind of needed and it's been it's been like and the anti-racism campaign that we, d- we developed last year reached 500 million people i mean it got a huge amount of reach with zero um you know investment and, and i think that's testament to the level of support that that this is now getting which is brilliant that's amazing can and can you just explain how people can support create not Hate? yeah i mean well we've got a gofundme page so they can literally if it's just you know individual contributions they can go on and, and make a contribution if they're in the industry we're, we're always looking for mentors um and, and agencies who can participate who can provide you know people and resources um and then brands obviously um you know uh, we would you know, love the opportunity to talk to any brands as well about running programs um, in the way that we have with John Lewis as well. So, and they don't all have to be social issues. I mean, the, the, the program we're running with John Lewis is, is celebrating modern Britain and it's, it's, a, it's a creative brief. It's not a socially driven brief at all um, because that, that is sort of, you know, yes, we've, we've, worked, we've looked at talk, tackling social issues um, historically, but that is, that's kind of not, it's not just about addressing cultural or social stuff. It's about getting a fresh take um, uh, from people that have had, like Trev said, different life experiences and different lived experiences to get to more kind of original thinking, um, to be honest with you. So it, that, it could be anything. It, it could be, you know, any sort of brief, really. But um, and then obviously, any you know, again, we, we've got um, some brilliantly talented people as well that um, that we're hoping to get placed in in the industry as well. So there's lots of different ways people can get involved. So yeah, there's we've got all our couldn't tell you what any of them are. Be told off, but all our social platforms and and all that sort of stuff. And there's ways to to get in touch um, if anyone wants to um, to get involved. We'll make sure all of the links are added to this show's listing. So um, so if you're listening now, you can you can see those easily on the episode uh, description. But I'm really pleased you're getting so much traction, and I think that actually, quite sadly, perhaps the when organizations try to tackle problems such as diversity themselves it it, it often is often met with friction i had the huge pleasure of talking to a guy called doug melville whose name uh, you might be familiar with but he uh, he was uh, tbwa's first global diversity officer mm. and he he mentioned to me that one of the traps he sees businesses falling into that is is they create a diversity department, if you yeah. like. And as soon as a business creates a department, everyone else outside of that department sees it as their responsibility to fix the problem and not their own. Yeah. And I remember having this light bulb moment when he when he first said that to me, and it just made so much sense, as you know, uh, rightly or wrongly, but it but it, but it did. No, I, I totally agree, and I, you know, I think it's important that it, it's got to be cemented into your values. It's got to be part of your business strategy. It's got to be like every part of your vision and, and approach it can't be just a um allocated to a division or a department in my view I've, i definitely feel that people have to embrace it at the top right the way through and not just push it into a little section within the company because like you said people will just ignore it and think it's somebody else's problem and it's 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 not a problem it's an opportunity and that's what people need to see it's going to help their business it's going to help themselves the more relevance and i'm i'm forever seeing this when every time I deal with these kids they're telling me things that I just didn't even know what 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 they meant at first and I'm seeing that the speed of creativity the way they can just make something within a couple of hours and put it onto TikTok and stuff and we're like it take us about six weeks and a production and multi multi meetings before we can do something like that and, and that is really important uh, and I think the advertising industry is still this big cl- um 
closed shop, this big ocean liner that takes a long time to turn around because of the nature of it. And I, I think it needs to it needs to buck up its ideas. I think um, I have a couple of listener questions that I'd like to put to you both. I, I think we'll do we'll do one each. I think that's probably the fairest split. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So uh, Rania, if I can come to you first, this question is from Jemima, and she asks. How do you balance running an agency together and your life as a married couple? And how did you find that over lockdown? I have a feeling you'd have answered this one before. (laughs) I mean, to be honest with you, surprisingly, I mean, it's getting better and better, if I was honest. We're we're fine. Like, it was difficult at first, I'm going to be honest. And we are very, we've got very, lots of similarities. We've got shared values. We, We, you know... And we, you know, we, we both have a lot of shared skills in a way, but we just go about them in a very, very different way. So I think at the beginning, it, it was incredibly frustrating trying to, you know, um, but actually as time's gone on, I think we've just kind of, well, it's a bit like a marriage. After a while in a marriage, you work out how it kind of works and how you, you know, respect it. And then same with in a working partnership. And I think for me, it seems it gets better and better each year. And Trevor might disagree, but I no, think it's I totally true. Agree. I think lockdown was lockdown was, was surprisingly the the, the 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 maddest thing was the first few months. I think because we didn't expect it to go on for very long. But the first few months of lockdown or weeks of lockdown, we literally sat at the same table working together. We do video calls all together on the same laptop, and like one day we were a bit like. What the hell are we doing this? We wouldn't do this in the office. I wouldn't sit next to you in the office and share a laptop. And um, <laughs> it went surprisingly well. I think we would have probably had maybe one or two major blowouts, but it wasn't that kind of yeah. It wasn't consistent bickering as as you'd sort of expect when you yeah, spend that much time with someone. I, I think it's. Um, I I, I realise a lot with relationships as well with friends, relationships, and marriages. Lockdown was a real divider. It was like being sent on holiday with someone and and realizing that you weren't compatible or you were and i think me and ron we've always have been but lockdown because of this kind of weird world was submerged into it kind of it really made us realize how strong we are together and it's us against the world or us supporting each other and it's and it's us kicking things around and shared frustrations and shared excitements and that's one of the beauties of uh, running a company together as well when you win a piece of business when you do successful pieces of things that people are talking about you're sharing you're truly sharing it with someone and uh, i think to me as well as coming from a world of having a creative partner um it always felt very natural for me and like i would have barneys with me and al like me and ron would, would would have arguments that's 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 a, a part of it, I think. You you know, it's not about one of you shouldn't back down so the other person wins. It's about both of your thoughts and ideas are worth thinking about and worth discussing and worth, you know, seeing it through. And, and I think it only makes the work better and I think it only makes our, our work environment better. I mean, I think in the past, we probably used to Barney more, you know. Oh, definitely, yeah. We've, we used to call it a lot more. I think... I think I've just had to sort of, you learn each other's boundaries really. And I think one of the biggest sort of points of tension was that I'm always on, whereas Trev, quite rightly as a creative, needs that time out. And, you know, I'd be literally, you know, I'd be talking to him <laughs> like any given moment. He's brushing his teeth in the morning or whatever else. And I'm chatting to him about work. And, and I've just sort of learned to have those cutoff points to go, actually, that kind of works for me. It doesn't work for him. And be respectful of those boundaries. And I think we just, 
yeah, I think we've just learned communication, isn't it? Better communication and uh, yeah. So it's been it's been a we've been through a lot. I think as a married couple and as as you know as as sort of business partners. And when you when you've been through that much and you're still kind of um, well, it breaks your makes you, doesn't it? And I think I think I'd say it's made us so. Well, without um, forcing any parallels between Gasp and, and Quiet Storm, I founded the AR agency with my wife, Sophie. And I think secretly, most of the team here, they see it as one of their highlights of coming to work is seeing us at each other's throats. Yeah. Because <laughs> we'll, challenge it, we'll challenge each other where others won't. I think there's a lot, a lot of comical moments for our, our team. Well. <laughs> Embarrassing and awkward moments too, but... But yeah, but I think you know, I know you know, you, I think it saves a lot of time. I think, and I think we tell each other things that maybe other people might not feel so comfortable telling us, and I think that's quite good because we hold each other to account as well. And I'm sure that's the same for your, you and your wife. Yeah, we're we're both very hot blooded individuals as well. So uh, when it kicks off, it kicks off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find that very comforting to hear. Thank you. <laughs> well, next time you have any problems, just give me a call. I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly mindful of time. I think we might have to skip uh, Taryn's question because I've got our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. But Taryn, just so you know, we did have a similar question with Paul Feldwick recently. So if you check that episode out on there, uh, we talk about sonic cues. Um, so the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses. I will split them down the middle again. So uh, Trevor, if we come to you first, what advice would you give to your younger self? I've actually heard this before and it stuck me at first because I was like thinking, oh God, what what would I say? The the thing is, my younger self was incredibly resilient, incredibly, just like he was so strong and he took knockbacks incredibly well and he he listened to what people were saying about him and saying about my work and didn't take it personally and funneled that back into works. And... you know, he was just incredibly um, just just single-minded and could work with people. So there's not a hell of a lot I could say to my younger self. I don't think I could be that guy again. Do you know what I mean? That guy ran through walls and, and took it and kept going and kept coming. And I've, I see it sometimes in a lack of other people where I just think you're not going to, you're not going to make it because you're, you're taking it all too personally and you're, and you're thinking the whole world's against you, and it's not. It's like it is a big, wide world out there. And if you're up for it, you can you can have it all. And I I'm not being naive when I say that. So I couldn't say a hell of a lot to him. Just say keep it up. Yeah, but there's great advice in that. There's great advice in that, and I think that's certainly a lesson that I know in my experience that creatives need to learn quite quickly that it isn't personal. Well, you need to fail fast and move on. And by fail, I mean, if someone gives you feedback that something isn't quite right or an idea just hasn't really got any traction and get and have yeah. another great idea. Yeah, totally. Uh, number two then, uh, Rania, if, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Well, I think Trev touched on it earlier, which is this kind of institutionalized thinking, you know, it's just, which I think we are finally kind of definitely challenging and there's definitely been a shift, but I think, uh, yeah, just, um, just, just the ability to sort of think, think outside of our kind of old, old school thinking and, com- you know, confined thinking. Well said. Very good. Um, number three, any books that you would recommend? It feels unfair to only allow Trevor to field that one, but they don't have to be industry related just for the record. They can be any 
Well, to be honest, Rani reads a lot more books, especially psychological books and um, books about the industry. So she could probably give you more relevant, relevant books. Mine were all like kind of like the usual from um, Catcher on the Rye to, you know, um, you know, all the usual books. I think Rani could give you a better assessment of books. Um, well, to be honest, yeah, I do read a lot of books and, and sort of psychological and as well as sort of behavioural economics and stuff like that. But I think one of my, but it's a bit of a heavy read, to be honest with you, if you're, you know, it's quite a lot of data and kind of stuff like that, which, which to be honest, I'm not brilliant with with that stuff myself. So if I can get through, I'm sure other people can, but it's the Daniel Arneman, <laughs> thinking fast and thinking slow. It's just that real solid understanding of how we make decisions and how our brains work I think is important for anyone who uh, is doing anything to do with trying to um, you know change behavior or influence influence um, people basically because it, it really gives you a good insight and understanding into how we think and operate um, and the chimp paradox is, a, is another good one as well, which is sort of what I found particularly interesting for me because I've got a very chattery brain. Um, and I think for anybody who just wants, again, to understand their own brain and their own minds and how um, they can kind of better manage that as well. So I think they're two, two good ones. Are we allowed to know what you've called your chimp? Oh, God. <laughs> Actually, I don't think I did name my did chimp. Did you not? Ah. I don't think I did. I was like, I probably wasn't. See, I don't follow instructions very well at all. <laughs> I, I've not read it. A couple of the team here have, and they've recommended I do um, a few too many times that I've started to take it personally, to be honest. Um, okay. No, it's, a good, it's a good book. You'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it. Yeah. I'm sure. Amazing. Well, there are three great books, and Catcher in the Rise is one of my favourite, and it certainly hasn't come up before. Um, I think Chimp Paradox did with Amy Keane, actually. Now I've, um, I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd add into it as well, which is a, a, it's written by a psychiatrist, but it's called Otto Daffe. It's a German um, um, psychologist that wrote this book. It's one of the most mind-bending book I've ever read, and it's lived, lived with me, but it's very hard to find, I'm afraid. But it's an um, amazing book. Okay, fantastic. Well, we'll try and, we'll try and include a link to that. And then we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guests in this instance who have to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode to someone? That can be an individual dedication each or a, or a joint dedication. Oh, God. Ron, you can have this one. <laughs> oh, God, I know this is this. I did, you know, I, I found this one quite difficult, but the only thing I could... I don't know. It's a really, um, it's a tough one to be honest with you. But I think, I think for me, it would be dedicated to anyone who, who you know, um, is even thinking about this industry on any level at all, and just really, you know, if, if we can do it, we're both such misfits, really, in terms of not misfits as in, you know, we're delinquents, but misfits as in we didn't, we neither of us fitted the the mold of the industry, in, you know, when we came into it, and I, I'd like to. For me, it'd be dedicated to anyone else who, who doesn't think, maybe, instinctively. Well, that's a good one. I think that's a really good answer, Ron. All the misfits out there, this is for you. That's a good one. Yeah, this industry needs more misfits. Yeah, so hopefully we're some inspiration. Yeah. If we can do it, you can. Definitely. I guess that's what we're trying to if say. We can bloody do it. <laughs> that's a that's that's an absolutely wonderful dedication, just to echo Trevor's point, because this industry, this world needs more misfits. We need to be prouder of being misfits too. I think they make do all the best stuff, all the, the most intelligent, creative, surprising stuff. 
it's always come from the, the ones that you just think is a little bit mad, a little bit weird. Yeah, well, funny enough, I, I, I'm, um, I don't think there's a, a right way of recruiting, really. But one of the things we focus on is asking how people are strange and how they're weird and how they're misfits. And we met uh, a really talented young lady recently, and I, w- I just can't stop thinking. Every time I think about it, it makes me smile. But she was explaining to me how she finds too many peas on a plate overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> and I totally understood her. I loved it. Oh. <laughs> so as a final call to action, so we will we will list everything in this in the episode description. So we'll have Quiet Storm, we'll throw in some some wonderful Haribo ads, links to Create Not Hate. So please do get involved and support that initiative if you can. Auto Defay, Catcher in the Rye, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow and the Chimp Paradox. How else can our listeners get more Rania and Trevor? Oh wow, they can Google us. I think probably <laughs> um, there'll be there's there's we do we I mean we're both quite active to be honest with you. We've done you know lots of articles and talks and stuff and yeah, I've done articles, talks for um, can can lines and done quite a few talks in here. I, I tried to blank them out in my head, but um, they're out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll find them yeah, we'll find there's, them there's some stuff we could we could we can send you some more links if if you wanted some more links to stuff that we've done amazing well um listen thank you so much both of you for joining us it's been a real pleasure and a huge privilege to talk to you both no it's a pleasure thanks for having us absolute pleasure Charles. you take care and finally thank you to everyone listening if you've enjoyed this episode please please do share it and review the podcast we really value your support Keep the questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah!